Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made. Today on the podcast, we have part two of entertainment law. For whatever reason, our first episode on entertainment law was a huge success. So here we are, back with part two, and this week I am joined by Rachel Harris, who is a friend and fellow entertainment lawyer. In this episode, although we have the aspiring entertainment lawyers top of mind, there is certainly something for everyone. We talk about tips and tricks for networking and getting involved into a sometimes very mysterious industry that can feel very, very hard to crack into. We also talk a lot about clearances and E&O and what that process looks like, especially from the perspective of your lawyer doing it. And of course, we give a lot of resources uh, for those people who are aspiring lawyers and answer a lot of the common questions that we get asked and also was not it was not so long ago that we were asking. So although this is certainly not a law podcast, we do get into the specifics of a couple of legal concepts. So do bear in mind that this is not legal advice and do not take any steps or refrain from taking any steps based on anything you hear in this podcast. And you have to listen to the very end because we do a really fun Canadian TV quiz. So without further ado, let's get into it. So, okay. So I think that we should start with how we met because I think it's such a great and fun story about how to net first of all how to network in the industry but also the joys that networking can bring because sometimes it feels so intimidating mm-hmm. and um we actually had such a positive outcome mm-hmm. I agree it's so important networking especially in the entertainment industry and the Ontario parks it's so small and it's so niche that everyone kind of knows each other correct me if I'm wrong but you reached out to me yeah. right for a li- like an informational meeting request. You were an articling student at the time? Yeah. But I remember when we chatted, I knew right away, I'm like, okay, I really like this girl and I'm gonna follow her path because she seems so passionate about the industry and I'm like really looking forward to what where she goes and where she lands. Cause I, I just believed in you. I knew like you can get it because you weren't practicing entertainment law at the time. You were- No. At, what were you I was doing? in litigation. Yeah, litigation, right. Yeah. And then we had a great chat, great chat on the phone. And then I saw that you got a job at where you are now. Yes. And I reached out to you on LinkedIn. LinkedIn again is another great tool to use. Like you want, it's something that every lawyer really should have because it definitely helps with that networking. Mm -hmm. And I tell students and people that call me and reach out to me and we have certain chats that add me on LinkedIn and every few months just you know send me a message like hey what's going on what's the status what's up like or do you have any interesting reads or any any interesting books or articles so that's just something side note like LinkedIn is is a great tool to you 
Um, but yeah, I messaged you on LinkedIn. It was just like, it was actually so nice and it meant so much to me. And then when I reached out to you <laughs> a couple months later to meet up for coffee, it was like, I didn't feel nervous about reaching out because you had kept in touch too. Like it felt like it was like a two-way street, which was really nice. I think that when you're reaching out to people, I think people often think like you can only really reach out to people who, um, are so much further ahead in their career than you because those are the people who aren't going to be able to give you jobs. And in reality, I feel like I've gotten more from our relationship because we're at similar points now in our career. We can like share resources and, and we message each other and we're like, oh, I listened to this really cool podcast or we both found out we're reading the same book. It, it's really awesome. And we hear this additional resource. Nice we're on the same path together. And, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm a call ahead of you. So, but it's still nice to have that connection with a junior lawyer just starting out like we have the same experiences and it's just so important I remember I after coffee I went to the office and I was talking to my boss and she was like yeah I just had coffee with this uh, other junior entertainment lawyer and really like her she's like oh that's great you made a new friend (laughs) I'm like yeah I did it's really there's something so special about meeting friends and colleagues and people that share the same passion and interest as you and practice the same type of law at this stage in our life. So let's talk about what entertainment law actually is. Entertainment law really is a collection of different areas and facets of law that impact the entertainment industry. So you can have entertainment lawyers, you know, they're broken up into different segments. So you can have film, TV, music. There's also copyright and IP. And within those sort of broad categories, you can practice, you know, litigation. Um, That's more like copyright IP side. You can do more general production services and development, and that's film, TV. It's a niche industry, but since we're both in like boutique firms, so our practice, what I like to tell people is like, the scope of our practice is to, we're serving clients, like we're serving, we're lawyers, so we're serving clients, but our clients are creative in the creative space. So they're creative personnel or companies or other t- folks. I think for, because we're at a boutique, we're at boutique firms, we're more client focused and client facing. Whereas if you're in-house counsel at E1, for example, you're more project-based. So you're, and like your, your client really is E1. So it's the studio, but at a firm, a boutique firm, you have a lot of different clients. It's not just in different projects. You can be at the start of following a client from development into production, or you could start with them at production level. A lot, it's very exciting and interesting. um, And there's a lot of different facets to practicing both as a boutique entertainment lawyer in-house or at a large entertain at a large firm that in a entertainment law practice when people ask me like what does a typical day look like I find that question really really difficult to answer and I'm I'm curious what you think about that because I just feel like every day is so different and sometimes I can think my day is going to look a certain way and then client emails me and all of a sudden I I'm doing that that day and so yeah, I'm curious what, what a standard day for you looks like and the types of projects that like you tend to spend most time on. 
Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I, I find that question difficult to answer. You know, someone will call me, my student will call me, and they're like, oh, what are you what are you working on right now? And I'm like, well, I can't really disclose what I'm working on. <laughs> but the, the speed of the environment is really intense. It's fast. And deals are done really quickly. And like you said, you can get an email. You can be working and negotiating a contract or drafting terms for a new deal. But then an email pops in from a client or the producer who's on set and they need this cleared as soon as possible. Um, yeah. You got to step in and, you know, put that paper, put that uh, deal memo that you're working on to the side and like jump into action and the work product I find needs to be sped up a bit, but it's challenging, but it's exciting and it's new and there's so much going on at once. So you really have to have like good headspace. Yeah. And good at good being good at prioritizing. That's something it's like you said, it's really fast paced and the turnaround is generally not more than a day. You're pretty lucky if you have a week to turn mm-hmm. something around. So yeah, you always kind of have to be on your toes. And I find that really exciting that I don't know what my day is going to be when mm-hmm. I come in. So, but in terms of the actual projects, do you spend, do you feel like you spend a lot of time drafting contracts? Are you doing a lot of, you know, review? What is the thing that you do the most? And maybe like the thing that you find the most enjoyable? So my practice is weighted more on film and television. So I, and my, my personality and my skill set, like, really is geared towards contract drafting and I love the problem solving. Mm-hmm. So I do love drafting contracts as nerdy as that sounds, but no, uh, I actually feel the same way and I feel like a loser admitting it. So I'm, I, we're just like, we really get each other and you make me feel like less of a loser about how much I actually like, like my job. And <laughs> things. Thank God we like <laughs> our jobs. I mean, that's like when you're younger, it's like, Oh, all I want to do is just like my job when I'm older. Yeah. I mean, there's certain aspects to every job that, you know, there's some wins and there's some losses, but at the end of the day, I enjoy going into the office and practicing Mm -hmm. entertainment law. So yeah, contract drafting, really fun stuff. No, for real. And um, when my client, right now I'm doing a lot of development deals, it'll gear up in March. That's like pilot season and then production's We'll start again in early spring and then the summertime is obviously very busy in Ontario for, for production. So during like, for example, this past summer, I had two, two or three productions going on, uh, one in two in Ontario, one in Newfoundland. My days were pretty busy with clearance, which is, you can get into clearance with clearance is seeking permission to use certain trademarks, copyright, products, brands, and clothing to be used and featured on screen in the, in the series or the film. Uh, I work a lot with like the art department. So when I get uh, an email from them, and sometimes it's like 20 a day at once, and they're all ASAP, end of day, I'm like, oh, okay, we can do this. Um, <laughs> I know exactly the feeling. <laughs> you know the feeling. So in that sense, that's like exciting, but it's also um, you have to use your discretion. Obviously, you have your mentors and your bosses to run everything by, but uh, they'll ask you, "Can we put this in the show? And can we have this cleared?" And um, you have to, you know, analyze it and assess the risk and 
you know, they have to get licenses for everything. So you're reviewing license contracts from the brand like Nestle or PepsiCo or whatever. Um, so those are my days. So this past summer, those were, that's what my day was filled with is clearance, fun, also fun. And then the contract drafting, I'd have to, you know, put on the side until later that night until I had time just to, you know, one to two hours where the production was closed, set was closed for the day, and I can just focus on my lovely contract. So that's that's day day to day. So yeah, winter time development, summer production, a little bit of both in the fall and spring. Right, and I find with series, I mean, production can last months, right? Two, four months, a feature film could be a week, two weeks, a month. Oh my God. I don't know how you did clearances like every day for like three months. That's insane. Yeah. On two, on two shows, heavy clearances on two shows. You're just praying that something, you're just praying that it's all going to go as planned and, you know, something doesn't go astray, but that's happened many times. Like we had, uh, we had to clear a very famous brand I won't disclose the brand but we had to clear it because it was on screen and it was the episode was locking so it was going to go to to the licensor and it needed to be locked so I had to like and the brand is located in the state so I was like calling them all the time trying to negotiate these license terms because we needed to have that uh that brand on on screen and you wouldn't Think, like when you're watching a show, you wouldn't think, oh, um, uh, that pillowcase, for example, in the back has copyright on it. Like you would never just, you would never know what happens behind the scenes, how many hours and, uh, you know, license agreements back and forth and terms and deal terms and negotiations back and forth to get that one pillowcase on <laughs> the, in the background. So you know, when you're watching a show now, I I find now when I'm watching films or television shows, I am looking at it through a different lens. For example, I was watching Euphoria the other night and they are under age and they're drinking and they're drinking Budweiser and they're also drinking and driving. And I was like, how did Budweiser clear that? Or how did they, did they get permission or did they just assume the risk? Because yeah. with lawyers, we have to advise um, this is the risk, but it's really a business decision from the producers whether they want to proceed uh, with the product and, you know, risk a potential claim of infringement down the road. Mm-hmm. So. And also what your insurance company is willing to, ex- like potentially if they exclude it from the policy, right. then that can be a problem for distributors. Like it, it's not necessarily an isolated either. Um, also, while we're talking about this, did you not think the whole Sex in the City Peloton incident was like the craziest thing ever? So crazy. Uh, there's an article in the New Yorker article. It's about it's from a production or an entertainment lawyer in the States. And she's writing on, you know, clearance and the Peloton. Apparently they did have clearance, but they didn't uh. explain how they were going to use the the bike there's one thing to have it in the show and you know it's potentially product placement the other thing is if it's disparaging or it'll elicit you know 
negative negative connotation and you don't want anything associated with like death right so I don't know what really happened behind the scenes I'm just I would love to be a fly on the wall in that in the negotiations of the license agreement if there was one so I'm not sure but yeah it's I was pretty shocked when I saw that really it is important to read the script so you get the the context of it right because it could be you're reading the script report report and it says skate. So you're like, okay, they want to use a skate, like ice skate um, in the show. And then you don't know what the context is. So you read the script and they go, oh, they want to use this to slice someone's neck open. Okay. Well, um, we can't have a brand brand on it. Yeah. (laughs) On there because they don't want people to then go buy the skate and then, you know, potentially kill someone they don't want to be associated with that so things like that that's why it's important to read the script for those type of clearance issues but that doesn't rarely if this all sounds really enticing to you and you're like wow you're like wow this sounds like so much fun i want to be an entertainment lawyer what would you say are some steps or like the first step for how to break into entertainment law um, so I would say, firstly, if you are, if you're a student, if you're in law school, or if you are an articling student and you're practicing, lit- you're in litigation, you're practicing um, not entertainment law. It's very difficult to find an articling job that does offer that entertainment law experience. So I would say, try and position yourself and your uh, extracurriculars and anything else, like position yourself so that you are in the industry, in the entertainment industry without really practicing it. And what I mean by that is join like your school's uh, entertainment law society if they have one. If they don't, look at the conferences for other other schools. Um, Osgood has a great one every year, Windsor Law, Western, I think. So there's always options like that. And through those societies, that's when you start networking, meeting, friends and uh, your colleagues. And then at these conferences, that's when some of the alumni come to speak or just industry professionals come and speak on, you know, entertainment law. So that's when you can also network. So networking is really, really important. Um, And even on LinkedIn, like use your LinkedIn to show that you're passionate about the industry. So if you are reading articles, you know, like articles or comment on an article that you read and post about it. Other ways to sort of break in are join, from my personal experience, I er, volunteered with the Windsor International Film Festival one summer. Windsor has a film festival, I know, who knows, but <laughs> so that's sort of how I positioned myself. And then I was also in the society, in the Western Entertainment Law, or sorry, not Western, Windsor Entertainment Law Society. So uh, all three years and then ended up being president of that. I joined, you can join WIFT, which is Women in Film and Television, um, you know, go to TIFF events. OBA has some great, great programs uh, and just keep networking and meeting industry folk and learning about their practice area because everyone's practice area is, is a bit different. So just use this time if you're not practicing entertainment law to really understand the different facets and the different aspects and the nuances that each practice area can can provide. Because, you know, we're practicing boutique, but 
a word a boutique law firm practicing I'm practicing film and TV and a little music, but other firms can do just music law or more general services and like employment. There's also tax and accounting principles and litigation and IP and copyright and media and esports. So there's a lot in the industry. There's lots to unpack. So just keep learning. Be curious. Don't give up. There's opportunities just waiting around the corner. Now you're really good at networking. So if you're someone who's listening, who's maybe like a little scared of messaging people on LinkedIn, or you don't know what to say, or you feel like you're shy and a little awkward, can you give some tangible tips to those people? Maybe like what you write in a message or like who you target to reach out to? Yeah. So targeting is important because at the beginning, I like to target maybe alumni. So anyone that was a graduate of Windsor Law or some other connection that we have, either if it's a person connection, so some a mutual connection that can sort of ease the conversation, or maybe you're, you look them up and you see that they're interested in, I don't know, like wine tasting or a certain book that they read. So, you know, certain things like that can help start the conversation. Or an article, yeah, or an article they wrote. An article that they wrote. So, for example, I read an article by an entertainment lawyer in Toronto, and I reached out to her just saying, hey, I read your article. It was really helpful with my practice. Love to stay in touch and connect with you on LinkedIn. And she was very receptive to that because at the end of the day, like, we're all, we're going to be in each other's lives. You, you know, get to know the same lawyers and the agents and the reps. So it's good to have that camaraderie and you know, that mutual respect. So they'll, they'll respect you if you reach out to them. I think it's always bold and uh, you can send a one line or two sentence line just saying, hey, uh, I thought I would connect. I'm really hoping to get into the industry or I saw that you wrote this article and uh, usually it's a positive response. 100%. I actually really, I really like it when people reach out to me now. Maybe it was because I was that person. I'm always happy and you're the same way because I feel like people for us paid it forward mm-hmm. that I'm much more keen to pay it forward too. And also WIFT is that I, is also another, um, something that you mentioned that I, I, I personally have used many times to say like, we're both part of WIFT. <laughs> yes. That's a good, so. WIFT is great. Actually, they have a mentor mentee uh, program and you get paired with someone that's in, that's in the same field as you. So you get paired with another entertainment lawyer. And that's, that's helpful because they're, you know, kind of like your guide through the Ontario entertainment law industry. Uh, so that's really important. Mm-hmm. That's a good place to start. So beyond networking, um, a lot of people ask this question about what you should be taking in law school, what you should be doing before law school, if there's anything that you need to study entertainment law, basically? Mm-hmm. Good question. There, there isn't a lot, there isn't like, I mean, for me personally at Windsor, there was an entertainment law course. So I had to think outside the box and what are the- <laughs> Choose your own adventure. Choose your own adventure. What are those, what are those skills? This is when networking comes handy when you're a student. So you ask them, what are some of the foundational skills you need as 
as an entertainment lawyer. A lot of the time it is contract drafting, like corporate basic skills like that, tax. Um, and then it's really important to understand trademark and IP and copyright. So I guarantee there's probably a trademark course or an IP course at, in law school. Those are really helpful. And then, I mean, I did have an entertainment course in Detroit, but it was it was okay. It, it was focused a lot on music law, which was interesting. It's its own other niche area. Yeah, so yeah, focused on, I would say, contracts, uh, any sort of business law, basic tax, accounting, real estate is important because we, we do review a lot of lease leases mm -hmm. and uh, location agreements. So real estate's good. No, it's true. And I think that the point also is like, these are all really important things, but like ultimately like you're going to be doing a broad practice and there's not like a special formula to become an entertainment lawyer. I think like I was, well, when I was doing my networking, so many people were like, you have to have that corporate experience. It's so important that you come from like a corporate background. Like no one's going to look at you if you're not corporate. And I was kind of like panicking because I was working in litigation. <laughs> and <laughs> the truth is, is like all of those skills are really useful. And then they make the transition easier if you're, you know, corporate. But like, I just focused on my um, employment litigation practice. And that's something that's enhanced my entertainment practice. And there's not like a, there's not like a, you have to have these certain courses. It's just like, these are all really helpful things, but ultimately like, I think you just kind of have to go for it and you have to work hard and you have to, like you said, choose your own adventure and like water your own garden mm -hmm. and make opportunities, even though there might not be entertainment law course. Um, did you ever take, I took the, um, the Osgood entertainment certificate. Did you do that? No, I didn't do it. I, I usually help. Yeah, you, you appear, you make appearances. I make appearances, you know, <laughs> here and there on the certificate. <laughs> and I help with the PowerPoint for one of the presentations. So no, excellent. <laughs> so happy you enjoyed that. No, I, I should. But that's, an, that's another thing that you can do is, is um, take entertainment law courses. Like WIFT offers some. Mm -hmm. Osgood has that certificate. Every year, you know, the OBA puts on some great, like they have some good educational content. And there, every two years, I believe, there is a, there's an entertainment law symposium. And it was just this last year and everything's on demand. So you can try and see if you can get access to those, uh, to those videos, because they're really uh, informative. But I think that that's really good advice. Like it's not, entertainment law is never going to be something that you just like, fall into like you have to kind of really work to be there and as soon as you do really any of these things you can show on your resume because all of these courses are things you can put on your resume and then anyone looking at resumes can see how committed and passionate you are so that's I think also kind of right. an added bonus I think that key word is passion because and you can you can train skill but you can't train personality and I mean, you can it's try. so harsh, but it's so true. <laughs> it, it's such like a, you know, cheesy line that I learned in business school back in the day, but I still, I believe in it. And I mean, we all went to law school. We're competent. We can get the job done. Right. But are you really passionate about the industry? Do you know the key players? Do you, do you are you actually interested in the type of work that you're going to be 
working on, you know, because we're here to protect and represent our clients and we need to be dedicated to, to our practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have that, that like willingness to learn and that drive and that curiosity and that you need to show those skills. Those soft skills are really important to show in your interview. So don't, um, underestimate those skills because you'll learn, especially when you're articling, whether you're doing, whether you're practicing litigation or family law or real estate, those are transferable skills. Like you're still looking at reading, reviewing, drafting contracts, uh, advising your clients. There's a lot of client um, relations. That's really important too. So you want to just be clever and think, okay, what skill? Okay, yes, litigation, that's not entertainment law. Or it is, but it's not the type of entertainment law I want to practice. I want to do more the solicitor side. But how? what are some of those skills in there that I can transfer over to a corporate job, even though I'm doing litigation? And there are. There are a lot of skills. You just have to find them. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And the other thing that I think is important is having interning experience, especially whilst you're at law school and you can potentially do it through your law school as course credit. So the <laughs> company doesn't have to pay you and you can just be there and still get some benefit from it. Um, so I know that you did one. I did one. a, yeah, from, for, it was a summer, summer student legal intern job and I learned so much. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was a legal intern. So I worked in the uh, television group. My boss at the time, Dina Appleton, was, um, she's amazing. And I developed a really, really strong relationship with her and like a good mentor connection. And I ended up assisting her and Dan Yankalevitz, who's at Sony in the States with their book, Hollywood Dealmaking. Which is a great book. Which great book. Should read. I'm plugging it right now. Hollywood <laughs> Dealmaking, the third edition. And a side note, reading is also a good way to educate yourself on entertainment law. And it's, and it's pretty uh, cheap way to do it. So we can post some resources yeah. uh, of certain books that we've, we've liked. Hollywood Deal Making is one of them. Um, Let's do that, actually. I would yeah. love to hear your list also. So we'll do that. I'll do that in the comments of the, or the comments, the okay. you know, episode notes of the podcast. So we can think about it and we'll put it in. Yeah. So yeah, E1 was a, a great experience. It was in-house. I really wanted to article there, but I'm glad I didn't because I articled at a full service firm downtown Toronto, just about under 10 lawyers. Um, and I'm glad I did because I never probably would have learned those litigation skills. I was doing like family law and estates. Um, and it was interesting. And I knew that I did not want to practice in any of those areas. And so it solidified my passion for pursuing a career in entertainment law. So that was really helpful. When you, I think, I mean, I was so sure about doing entertainment law. I immediately wasn't afraid of pigeonholing myself, but actually in hindsight, I think that articling in a more general practice or something different does give you a really good perspective of how the law works and I actually <laughs> said this in my interview but I stand by it today that articling in litigation gave me a better appreciation for the risks of uh when you're drafting a contract and and like what's going to happen and the consequences of mistakes that may get made in the in the contract and it makes me a lot more 
weary of certain protections that need to be in there that I think that if, if I hadn't had that experience, I might be a little bit more like laissez-faire about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If for those that are listening that uh, are looking for an articling job right now and all they can find is litigation and they don't want to do litigation, just do it because you're not going to pigeonhole yourself right now. Um, you never know where it's going to lead to. And it's some good skills that you can learn. And like you said, that's such a good perspective to have is to learn, you know, the consequences. Like you don't want to go to court. Yeah. No. And also I think like my, actually the firm that I was at, the litigation firm like specialized in insurance law, but there was this one partner who did a ton of employment law. And I just like every day was like knocking on his door being like, okay, do you have any files for me? There are so many opportunities with wherever you end up and you just have to make the most of it. I said this before, but like, you're just, nothing's going to be handed to you. You have to to go for it. You have to be zealous in pursuing your, in your passions. Passion, keyword, passion. (laughs) So, okay. So we're both at um, full service entertainment boutiques, but there are a lot of other opportunities to practice entertainment law beyond that. So I think for those people who, I think there's a kind of a misconception or, Certainly, I was scared by many senior entertainment lawyers that it's so hard to break into and that it's impossible to do. <laughs> You're never going to do it until you have five years of corporate experience at a base street firm, and then maybe someone will consider you. And that's based on our experience, just not the case. So let's say there's not an opening at an entertainment boutique firm where you maybe a little more interested in something else. Let's talk about those other opportunities that are less well-known. So then, yeah, you have the broadcasters like Bell and CBC, and then there's there's Rogers. You can look at uh, like telecommunications, for example, like even in the government, there's opportunities. Like you mentioned with those smaller production houses in Ontario, like, you know, you have the E1s and the choruses, but you have Boat Rocker and... Insight Productions. There's a lot of animation houses too, Nine Story. And a lot of the time the posting isn't entertainment lawyer, it's director of legal affairs and or manager of legal affairs. So you see those and you're like, director? I don't want to be a I want to be a lawyer. Um, But no, you got to read the job description because it is for a legal job. You have to have a law degree to do it. And you're practicing entertainment law, but I just, your title may not be entertainment lawyer. So those are things that you can, you can look out for. So if you look at like a lot of these times, you know, they're, you can find the postings on LinkedIn or you go actually go to the company's website and look at their contact page or their career page and see if they're hiring. And if they're not, maybe send them a message and just say, hi, I'm um, articling student or I'm a, I'm a lawyer and I'm, you know, looking to do, you know, get some experience in entertainment law. No, I think it's a really good idea because I think that people are oftentimes really receptive to that and you never know what's happening. Like it could be that someone, that someone just put up a resignation or even if there's nothing that, and they like talk to you and they like you, like they might just put your resume in their pile of resumes and then call you when they do have an opening. And also someone gave me this advice and I think, and it was actually, I think the reason why I applied for the job that I have now was uh, playback. Yeah. Playback has the best job postings because they're all entertainment specific. And yeah. So definitely check playback and people are moving around. There's a lot, people move around a lot. Um, There's a lot of lateral, 
lateral move. So I think once you're in the industry and you're practicing, even if you're not enjoying the job that you're, if you, let's say you're in-house and you don't want to go in, you don't want to work in-house anymore and you want to do more client-facing work, um, like a boutique law firm, you can always make that shift. You can go from in-house to boutique to even a Bay Street firm. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen a lot. So those are some good options. But yeah, right now there's a shift going. There's a shift. People just like people are moving around. So it's a good time to get in, get in there. Yeah. You just got to break the barrier and, and you will, you'll get there just because you're not working in the industry right now. doesn't mean you'll never work in the industry. Like, yeah. Keep pushing yourself. Okay, are you ready? Are you, do you have any other tips or tricks that I missed, missed talking about that you hot, feel compelled to say? Hot tips, hot tips and tricks. Feel free to link in with me after <laughs> and link in with Olivia and just say, hey, listen to the podcast. This is a great way to have that ease of that conversation. Like, you know, I listen to the podcast. So now that you listen to it, link in with us, connect with us. Would love that. But yeah. Uh, I, I actually, you're such a, you're such a pro networker that you took the opportunity to do that. You've just like helped so many people. So I hope that people actually do reach out to us. Um, cause I think that's awesome. Okay. Are you ready for your, your entertainment law quiz or entertainment quiz? Mm, yeah, are you afraid? I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So all of these, so I'm going to read a description of a TV show. That's a famous Canadian TV show. And you okay. have to tell me what show it is. Some of them are really easy and some of them are a little bit more difficult. Okay. And it's Canadian. Okay. It's all Canadian. Yay. We love Canadian content. We do. Number one, a wealthy couple suddenly find themselves completely broke. Shit's Creek. Ding, ding, ding. Very good. Let's do another. Well, easy one. Okay. While running a convenience store in Toronto. It's convenient. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You got it. Too excited there. Okay. A young detective in Toronto during the 1890s and the early 1900s uncovers challenging murder cases. Yeah, it's uh, that murder show. (laughs) (laughs) That's like 18 seasons. Oh my gosh. Yes. What is it? It's uh, come on, you got this. Oh, Murdoch. Yes. Mysteries. Yes. Okay. Murder Dark Mysteries. You got it. (sighs) Another long running show. Mm -hmm. Amy and Lou keep their mother's memory alive by tending to their injured horses. Is it still airing? Yes. Airing new episodes? It's still, it's still on. Horses. Okay. I have no idea. It's Heartland. That's what it is. It's Heartland. Yeah. Okay. Then. Hopeful entrepreneurs try to secure funding for their businesses. Um, is this a docu-series? It's a reality series. Oh. Unscripted. So, um, Dragon's Den? Yes. Correct. Oh. Okay, we've got another, we've got another unscripted. Okay. A home contractor tries to make it rain. Make it rain. Um, make it right. Oh, make it right. <laughs> is that the slogan of the show? Make it right. Um, properties. He's like, are the property brothers? Yeah. 
It's only one contract year. One. Oh, homes? Homes, homes on, on homes. Homes on homes, yeah. <laughs> you got it. Got it. Okay. We're going, okay, we're going like probably Canada's most famous show. Ricky, Julian, and Bubbles scheme to get rich and get out of jail. Taylor Park. Yes. Boys. Correct. I just thought I heard oh. the name Bubbles in those. Yeah. <laughs> okay, last one. When not opening the tickle trunk, the host visits his friend, Casey and Finnegan. This is like a blast from the past. From this the is like from the 90s. Uh, outside the box? No. What? Oh, bananas in pajamas? No. <laughs> That's a good one. It's one man. One man. And it's like it's a Mr. something. Oh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Neighbor? No. Mr. Oh my God. What's his name? Do you want me to tell you? Hmm? Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, and I'm going to know it. But sure. Mr. Dress Up. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So that was too hard. You did really well. Oh, that was fun. That was fun. Um, should I do one for you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's a new show and it takes place in Newfoundland, St. John's, about a little boy in the 80s. Son of a bitch. Yes. Do you yeah. have another one for me? Another one? Canadian? Uh, oh, it's a competition series. People are partnered up. Okay, I was going to guess MasterChef. Amazing Race. Yes. Yes. Canada. Amazing Excellent. Race. <laughs> well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. This was so fun, and I hope you feel like you um, are proud of your podcast debut. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We hope that you enjoyed the podcast today and don't forget to follow Rachel's advice and reach out to both of us on LinkedIn. Send us a message and don't forget to follow at Canadian Made Podcast to stay up to date on all the podcast news and we'll see you next Wednesday.